Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. In the early morning rain, with a dollar in my hand, with an aching in my heart and my pockets full of sand, I'm a long way from home and I miss my loved ones so, in the early morning rain with no place to go. Hi everybody, this is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot song by song. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a friend of mine who's been a friend of mine for probably as long as I've known anybody in my life, now I come to think of it, the former bassist and vocalist for We Five, Pete Fullerton. Pete, thanks so much for joining me today and happy wedding anniversary. Thank you, sir. It's a joy to be here. It truly is. So what was your relationship to Gordon Lightfoot or with Gordon Lightfoot in the 1960s? Well, it started off just through his music, uh, listening to what he had to say. He convinced me that the music that he, he sang and the words that he used were the truth. And I love to hear the truth in its simplest form. And he was that. It was beautiful. It was tactful. And it was sometimes right out there on the edge of everything. Good way of describing it. What do you like about Gordon Lightfoot's music? I mean, for me, it's just the fact that he's so unpretentious. There's no attempt for him at being anything other than he is. Is that a sentiment that you would agree with? I would agree 100% with that. He said, and even in person, he's just that way. So let's talk a little bit about We Five. It was a band that had quite a run in the mid-60s. You had done the You Were On My Mind album in 1965, which was a top five hit. And then Make Someone Happy came out in either 66 or 67. I can't remember which. What happened to the band between 67 and the time when the band recorded this song in 1970? Well, we were in, in a flux with different people. We had a, a group of people come in and a group of people go out. Some people would, um, they wanted to do different things. We had different musical directions. And well, Michael and I and Jerry Bergen picked a direction, but we didn't really stick together. We sang on recordings and other things like that, but we didn't really stick together as a singing group. Jerry Bergen and I did, and his wife did. So from there on, Michael became our producer on albums. So in the Catch the Wind album in 1970, was Michael just producing? Was he in the control room or did he play on the record at all? He was producing and he, if there was some sweetening to do to it or some rhythm on the guitar, he would come out and add to that. He did a little bit of singing, but not much. So it was you and the Bergens. So Jerry and Debbie. Who else? Was, yes. Bob Jones had left the band and Bev Bivens had left the band. So who and Michael was producing. So who else was actually playing on the record? 
Oh, well, there was um, James Burton, who is uh, the guitar player. During that, uh, you can you'll hear that background in our, in our version. Well, that was James Burton, and it was uh, Elvis Presley's uh, guitar player. Ronnie Tuck came in and did some sweetening on the drums a little bit, but not much, because he was a friend, you know, he's just a buddy, and he is also Elvis Presley's drummer. Mm-hmm. So that there was those two, uh, and then some studio musicians, as far as horn players, came mm-hmm. in. But we knew them all; they were just buddies. They'd come in and they'd have the chart in front of them, and they'd read it and say, "Yeah, that's good. Let's try this." They did it, and we did it that way. Did you record it in Nashville? No, we recorded it in Columbus Tower in um, San Francisco. We recorded some of it in Columbus Tower. Yeah, not all of it, but they kind of we kind of went around and did it. We recorded different things, different places. I always associate James Burton as being a, a studio guy. And he did yes. play with Elvis live and he played on Roy Orbison's live album in the late 80s. But I always associate him with the Nashville scene, uh, rightly or wrongly. He is, rightly. He's, yeah. a, he's a Nashville cat. Yes, he Play is. Country water. <laughs> like the uh-huh. little spoon, spoonful. <laughs> so what was the yeah. making of the Catch the Wind record like? And I, I give a little bit of a backstory here for the listeners. When I was very young and I had only known you for about a year, I kind of caught the folk music bug. And I was hanging out at yeah. your place and I was going through your record collection. And I knew that you'd been in We Five, but I hadn't seen this particular record before. And I pulled it out mm-hmm. and I was just bug-eyed with these 14-year-old eyes. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, I have this friend who actually got a record. And I don't remember a lot of what we talked about, but you did say in the context, we had a lot of fun making that record, meaning you and Jerry and Debbie. What was so fun about making the record? The most fun and best thing was that everybody really liked each other. That was number one. Number two was that we were all pros by that time. We all knew what we were doing. We all could sit down, look at a chart, do it and say, okay, let's do it right. Let's do it this time. And no laughing, no messing around, no screwing around, just do it. And, you know, that was there's comfort in that. And we all felt very comfortable in making the music. So comfort with each other, comfort with how to make records, probably comfort with the technology that was around. And the fact that you have your brother in arms, Michael Stewart, in the control room, you can't ask for a more comfortable combination than that. In fact, you might add to this to it is uh, I think that that Gordon Lightfoot reminded me a lot of Michael Stewart in his in not only his technique, but his laid back attitude his way of doing things um if he got nervous he kind of got in front of stuff but as he went and he was really lilting he was so cool so fun to work with and his brother john wrote a number of songs that we five recorded also if i'm not mm-hmm. mistaken yeah and you and i both know have knew john and i know that we both miss him very much he was just a amazing and un- very mm-hmm. underrated songwriter and musician now When you were thinking about how the record was going to go, what was it that appealed to you about Early Morning Rain, which is the song that we're talking about today? Well, it appealed to me and Michael at the same time. We knew that way back in probably 66, we wanted to do something like that, but we didn't quite know what because we are barraged by 
material. Literally, we were barraged by hundreds of songs by people that were not known. And we were, that happened every week. We wouldn't be able to listen to all of them. But the thing that really made sense to me was when Michael and I were out on the end of the runway, waiting for the birds to come in and land. No, I mean the singing group, the birds, not the bird birds tweeting. <laughs> oh, I mean, David, Roger McGuinn and company. Okay, yeah. That's it. Yeah, we were waiting for them to come in because they were going to join us on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars and uh, go throughout the South and the Northeast. And that's when I met all these great people on this Caravan of Stars. Michael and I sat at the end of the runway, just like I know he must have. Gordon Lightfoot. And we started playing the song, me with my little solo phone, which is like a little earphones that you have for my bass. And he he had uh, just his acoustic guitar. And we started playing early morning rain. Yeah, and it was so cool. And we knew that at that point, that's how Gordon Lightfoot was feeling because we were feeling the same way. When the words told us, this is what he's thinking. This is what he's feeling. Yeah. So the kind of, and we'll talk a little bit more about the lyrics as we go on. Sure. Yeah, he was, uh, it's a very evocative song. And I can tell that, and you were listening to it pretty much around the time it came out. So mm-hmm. I, I know what you're talking about. The thing I love about it is that it's straightforward. There's not mm-hmm. a whole lot of lyrical riddles and there aren't in most of his songs anyway. There's not too many that you play and then you're up until three in the morning saying, what the hell is he saying? It doesn't require tons of instrumentation. I mean, the recordings of it that I have heard by him or by We Five were all pretty straightforward. Um, and we'll talk about the personnel on both of those in a while. And it says its piece and gets out. I mean, this is not an epic. This is not a suite of songs. This is not something that's indulgent in a whole lot of, you know, instrumental breaks or, you know, here's our guitarist and we're going to listen to him go off for five minutes. The lengths of your recordings are really consistent. I mean, when Gordon recorded the song in 1966, it was three minutes and eight seconds long. When he re-recorded it for Gord's Gold, it was three minutes and 19 seconds long. And We Five did it in three minutes and 11 seconds. So you really stayed true to the form. Yeah. Well, that's, that's like going back to what I was saying about telling the truth in 30 seconds or less. You could do that. We could. And that's probably the best way to do music is to say your piece and get out, at least in my own experience. So Michael wrote in the liner notes to this album, and I'm quoting directly. When we first talked about recording again, we meaning the band, we wanted music that was simple, alive, and most of all had feeling. This album is the end result of that wish. We picked songs the group loves to sing and their performances show it. And then later on, he says, there's not much more to say, except this album is intended to make you feel good. So if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it, we'll all be happy. And that's Michael Stewart talking. Is there anything you can add to that? Well, I made an awful lot of people feel good, apparently. <laughs> we, we, uh, I think we've finally crossed a million copies on that. But the vinyl was probably not up to 400,000. Vinyl was king at that time. There were no CDs and there were no um, iTunes and things that you could hang out that way. You you had a radio and you had a little KLH travel uh, spin turntable. And that's what you listened to. 
now with, with the advent of those little discs called CDs and all these iPhones and all that sort of stuff, it's up, it's up over a million. So wow. yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people liked it. Yeah. And I and loved that- it. In the early morning the genesis of the song how gordon actually went about writing the song well from from my looking back on it over the years and coming back up to it and up to speed the way you had actually asked me if i would look into it i think probably he was doing it the same way i mike and i were doing it which is we were thinking of our families we were thinking of coming back home coming back and being with our families and wishing we were there and he had a little boy that uh yeah, when he was first, I guess he was living in L.A., going to school, and and he could relate to being out and away, and that kind of being out and away kind of relationship has to draw out something, and in his case, it was music, and he was so good at it, and once again, I can't stop saying this, he could tell the truth in 30 seconds or less. He's a very rare bird. And songwriters are lucky people. I mean, Harry Chapin was able to do that among other people, yes. you know, just was able to, you know, say their piece and get out. And it just impacts people for generations. He wrote it, I think, in 19, or he had the experiences of it in 1960 when he was at uh, music school in LA. <clears throat> and it wasn't until four years later that he actually sat down and wrote the lead sheet to it while his baby son, I think it was his first child was in, lying down in his bassinet or something. And so it took four years for him to actually get pen to paper, but he remembered it so beautifully and he could still sense the emotions of it. And I think that was another thing that when you heard his recording of it, which we'll talk about, and when you did it, I mean, it was because this was not just a cosmetic song that he was doing or that you were doing. You really knew what he was talking about when he was mentioning this desire to go home. Yes. Yeah, we really did know. And once you've experienced something like that and you hear it done by a person who's a good songwriter, you want to do it. It it compels you to do it. And we were feeling compelled to do it because we just loved the the piece of music. We really, truly did. I can tell you that, I mean, it's one of those songs that, of course, I have no right to say this, but I would listen to it, you know, when, when I was growing up and think to myself, damn, I wish I'd written that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just, it, it, you know, reflects a lot of what I felt from time to time. So I read, I want you to tell me if you think this is a good allegory for it. The lyrics suggest someone down on his luck, standing at an airport fence and observing the thunderous takeoff of a Boeing 707 jet airliner. The general narrative of the song can be taken as a jet age musical allegory to a hobo of yesteryear lurking around a railroad yard attempting to surreptitiously ride a freight train to get home. End of quotation. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, that's that's the general view of it. But the way he saw it and what we talked about was that, you know, he was just feeling sorry for himself. <laughs> he was waiting. He wanted to go home. He wanted to be with his kid. He wanted to be with his wife or his girlfriend. And he wanted to go home and be there. That's right. It is a great, I mean, I love the, me being a history buff and everything. I mean, I've done a little bit of research on hobos. And so this could be somebody, I mean, you could uh, rearrange the lyrics a little bit and it could be Woody Guthrie sure. you know, talking about the desire to go from someplace to someplace else. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it, a hobo is the same, same portrayal. Now, let's talk a little bit about the lyrics. But before we do that, you guys made a few kind of superficial changes to the lyrics. Yes. And you certainly didn't, you know, rip them off and start all over again and pass it off as your own. But did you, when you were changing those lyrics, did you have to go through his publisher or did you just kind of use poetic license and cross your fingers that he wouldn't get mad at you? Pretty much. Um, and it was okay with him anyway. Uh, yes, we just kind of did it. We didn't have to go through his publisher. We didn't have to do anything like that. But and nobody got after you on the back end? You know, it was too inconsequential. We were making it our song. When you record something, you make it yours. And if you don't and you can't, don't record it. Yeah, I think it's a good attitude to have. So in the early morning rain with a dollar in my hand, you guys said without, without a, dollar a dollar in my hand. Yeah. Um, and was that just because you wanted to make the image that much more stark or was there a reason yep. for that? Yeah. The, the reason for that was because we really were kind of almost broke and, you know, we were, we were borrowing money to buy sandwiches and even though we were on the cavalcade of stars, we mm -hmm. didn't have very much money. So we could really relate to Gordon with a dollar in my hand. The only reason you got a dollar in your hand is because you got it somewhere. Where'd you get it? Well, I didn't have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it kind of implies that that's all the money I have. Okay, I, I have, have one certainly. buck left, and that's all I've got right. left in the world. Good. But a hobo would say, without a dollar in my without hand. Without a dollar in my hand. Okay, well, it makes perfect sense. With an aching in my heart and my pockets full of sand, I'm a long way from home, and I miss my darling or loved ones. So, in the early morning rain with no place to go. Yep. That is one of the two favorite parts that I have of this song is when you guys split into harmonies at the end of the first verse. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or towards the end, when you said in the early morning rain, and then it ends into three or maybe four part. Well, harmony. I can't tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of it. And I've got to think that that was Michael who said, Hey, let's do this way because it is showing the vocal talents that the three or four of you had. Right. That was certainly part of it, yeah. Out on one, runway number nine, <clears throat> big 707 set to go, and I'm stuck here in the grass, and I've heard three different versions of this next phrase, okay? Where the pavement never grows, which to me doesn't never... make any sense at all, and then uh, with a pain that ever grows, mm -hmm. I think that's how he actually wrote it. Somebody else yeah, wrote I think it. So. And you guys did Where the Cold Winds Blow. Wind blow. And is that coming back to your own experience of sitting at the runway and feeling the cold wind? Yes, sir. It certainly is. <laughs> it certainly I figured, was. I figured. Now, the liquor tasted good and the women all were fast. And yeah. you, when you guys did that phrase, it sounded, and the women all 
slower, fast. You crescendoed into that. Gordon doesn't do that on his recordings. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, was that deliberate to make that crescendo? What was the feeling you were trying to communicate with that? When an airplane goes over your head, you raise your voice. You can't, you have to. And you can make that happen in music. If you're saying it poetically, it's difficult to translate that. But if you're doing it in music, you can have that crescendo happen, write it out, and it happens every time. All right. And it was a nice effect. I I mean, just the fact that it was emotional, you know, to me was appealing for that. Well, there she goes, my friend. She'll be rolling down at last. Hear the mighty engines roar. See the silver wing on high. She's away and westward bound. Far above the clouds she'll fly where the morning rain don't fall and the sun always shines. That's that crescendo again. She'll be flying over my home in about three hours time. Now that one, I very recently got stuck on that message because today, if you were to take a nonstop flight from LAX to Toronto, it would take Mm -hmm. you four and a half hours if you had no problems whatsoever. Okay. And he said in about three hours time, was there some poetic license there? Do you think? Sure. There was. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was talking about a guy who's sitting at the end of a runway, who's never been on an airplane, looking up at the sky saying, geez, I wonder how long it would take to get there. Asking himself that question. I'll bet it would be less than five hours and about three so he probably in, in four hours and 52 minutes and 30 seconds, seconds right? yeah, yeah, not yeah. very poetic. Yeah, <laughs> no. okay, got it. And then it finishes, this old airport's got me down. It's no earthly good to me. And I'm stuck here on the ground as cold and drunk as I can be. You can't jump a jet plane like you can a freight train. So I'd best be on my way in the early morning rain. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a sad ending that mm-hmm. you realize he's helpless, he's hung over, he's cold, he's broke or very near to being broke. And so he just figures, I better just get out of here. There's no point in staying here. But yet the music of it is still pretty jaunty, especially the way We Five did it. I mean, it is not one of those songs that I would play if I was depressed to amplify the mood. I would listen to that, you know, probably driving somewhere on a bright, sunny day. So I'm kind of wondering, because you held so true to his arrangement, um, mm-hmm. do you think there's any reason why he just kept the major key and the up mode of the whole tune? Well, maybe he gave us the advantage of knowing what he was saying and what he was, who he was talking to. He gave us the, the right to be within the song and speak to people from within the boundaries of the song and do whatever we wanted to. So the way we were singing the song is the way we wanted to portray where we were. We're not sad. We're just tired and hungry. We're just tired and broke. You know, that's, that's cool. That's life. Then we'll go on to the next thing. Next. Did he, did you ever hear from him either through your management or through the grapevine about how he liked your particular recording of it? No, I never did. No. It'd be interesting to know. It would. It would. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the different versions of it. Um, This originally appeared on his first album, which was called Lightfoot. It was re-recorded on Gord's Gold, which was his sort of greatest hits in 1975. Have you heard both of them? And which one did you prefer of the two? I have heard both of them. And 
uh, I'm, I have to say the second one was much, much better because he was so, he was so tight on the first one because he had to feel that tick, 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 that hard rhythm going. It was just, I think, too hard for the song. But the second one was more lilting. And that's the way I feel it. Yeah, I think he was probably nervous. I mean, because here's yeah. this young guy at the age of maybe 27. Yeah. Okay, maybe. but no older than that. His first recording session, maybe ever, very, very close to it. And he doesn't have a whole lot. I mean, there's only two other people who play it on the whole record. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think he was probably nervous. And I mean, I can imagine being in that kind of position when I was 27 and thinking to myself, uh, what am I going to do? Because now, you know, if I mess this up, I'm going to blow it, never, you know, work in music again. So mm -hmm. I can imagine there was probably some nerves going on with him too. There were, yeah. And he probably sobered up a little bit before he did it because, oh boy, I better not get this wrong because I can't afford to do too many takes. So he was probably uptight and sweating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe he'd had too much coffee. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. We'll be back to our conversation with Pete Fullerton in just a minute. But first, a word from one of our partners. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. And now back to our conversation with Pete Fullerton about Early Morning Rain. The other thing I didn't like about the original was that his voice did not sound as mature as it would in the 70s, okay? In 66, I think he was probably singing a little bit more off the top of his head rather than from his diaphragm. And he also was trying, it sounded too twangy. Um, it didn't sound like the Gordon Lightfoot that I want to listen to. And it may be one of the reasons why he said in later years that he doesn't like listening to his early work. Well, that makes sense because when you get older and the older you get, you know that the, the voice goes down into the chest. Sure. And if you're really blessed, it does. If it doesn't, then it stays up in the nose and you can't talk like this. And well, you don't want to do that. You want it to come down and speak from your heart. That's where your chest is. Yeah. And, you, and if he does, he does. Now, in the original, I think I said there were only three people that got credit on the original. Okay, Gordon Lightfoot did the guitar and vocals. David Ree was playing second guitar. And Bill Lee uh, played bass. When he did the, the remake, okay, it was yeah. Lightfoot, Red Shea, and Terry Clements were both playing mm -hmm. guitar on that, although I don't know who was playing lead and who was also just playing rhythm. Lightfoot was playing the 12-string. Rick mm -hmm. Haynes was playing bass and then someone that you know of or know personally, or maybe worked with Lee Holdridge uh, did the orchestration. What's his, what's Lee's reputation? Oh, he, he goes back with a lot of people and um, mostly Nashville. He has, a, he's, he's a Nashville cat and everybody there knows him. 
So it's not as though he's a personal friend. It's just that everybody knows of him and of his arranging. Mm-hmm. And his skills are, they're renowned. They're really good. Good. Now, the original album, uh, Lightfoot, went gold in Canada. Um, I know that you had said that when you recorded the Catch the Wind album, We Five was kind of on its last legs at that point. And you have also said that you were kind of disappointed with the original sales of the album. But the number that I think you and I talked about before we went on the air was still pretty impressive. And as you said earlier, I mean, it's over a million now sold. So do you remember about what the original sales were for Catch the Wind? I don't think it was more than 300,000, maybe 350,000, somewhere around there. And that was within the first six months. Uh, and it was, it was a hit. You know, they measure a hit by 100,000, I think. In those days, they did at least. Still, that wasn't enough to get us gigs that we really wanted. It, we got nightclubs. We got some smaller venues, but never anything big or playing with another band. And that's what we really wanted to do was get into that again. And was there a single released from that album or was it Early Morning Rain? You know, I honestly cannot remember that. I don't know. Okay. I don't know if we even did that, (laughs) but yeah, maybe. The reason I ask is that Gordon never put out the song as a single, at least not that I can recall back in 66. But we'll talk about this right now because it's been covered by dozens and dozens of people. And I won't read you the whole list, but the names that really jump out at me are Harry Belafonte, The Brothers Four, Chad and Jeremy, Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead, Ian and Sylvia, The Kingston Trio. Let's stop there for just a second. When The Kingston Trio recorded it, was that before or after Dave Gard had left the band? Do you know? That was after Dave Gard had left. Um, John Stewart was in the group then. Jerry Lee Lewis, Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers, Peter, Paul and Mary, Jerry Reed, Porter Wagoner and Neil Young. And then the one that absolutely blew my mind was Elvis Presley. And there is a kind of a story there about how Elvis got a hold of that song. Can you share that with us? Well, we, we five knew his band members and we, you know, we, James Burton was his guitar player when he was in Las Vegas and we were playing in Las Vegas and I went up to his room to give him an album, uh, Kiss the Wind album. And um, he wasn't there at the moment, but I left the album with him and said, take particular attention to this. And so Ronnie Tut said, thanks, I'll do that. So Ronnie was the drummer. So within Fortnite, we heard it done by him. So I'm guessing it's either a close, um, just complete coincidence, or it's influence for me. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> you know, it's it would be one. I mean, we'll never know. You know, well, level, but it's a great thing to tell your kids and your grandkids, yeah. of course. You know that you were able to hand this thing off. You know, to the king of rock and roll, and he did. You know, a pretty respectable job with it, from what I can yeah. tell. Have you heard of any of the other cover versions? Yeah. Yeah, I heard Harry Belafonte's version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard uh, the Brothers Brothers Four, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I heard um, the Kingston Trio, of course. There were a lot that I heard because I did a lot of listening in those days to a lot of different groups. And they would just happen to 
surreptitiously bring one in and there I would be. So okay. yeah, I've had a lot of different people do it. Now, is there anyone that you wish had done covered the song or that today you'd say, you know, I really would love it if this artist would do the song? Yeah. Yeah. I think Willie Nelson could kick it. I mean, he could really be good. And I think that uh, Alabama with just the vocals and, and the guitar, because they have such a diverse, strong vocal and they're laid back and you need to be laid back to sing the song. And Willie Nelson's definitely laid back. <laughs> he has a lot of help with that, I believe. <laughs> yeah. For me, I wish that Roy Orbison had done this song. Mm -hmm. I wish that Johnny Cash had done it because I think yeah. this is everything about the song is really right up his street. In as much as both of them are gone, I think if I could pick anybody these days, it would be either Gretchen Wilson or Carrie Underwood. Those would be great choices because they're also laid back. They're also beautiful, clear voices. Yeah. So, Judy Collins, who is another person who recorded this song, uh, said in one of the books that she's written, and I quote, Gordon still sings this song better than anyone can. It grabs you like the roar of an airplane engine or a train whistle a long way off. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to do better than what the, the original was. I agree. I agree. Now, you and I have talked about this before, and if you remember, God bless you, but how many times is your guess that Gordon has played this song in concert? Oh, my gollies. Uh, he's an older feller now, you know? He's 82, is he? Uh, he'll be 82 this year, yes. Uh, I would say a 1,000. Not bad. Okay, 705 times. Yeah, okay. All yeah. right. First time was he both the first time and the most recent time. We were both in Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, first time was on January 27th, 1966 at the right. Riverboat. And I don't even know if the Riverboat is still around. And then he played it most recently, I think six months ago to the date, December 18th, 2020, in a place called El Mocambo in Toronto. Right. So the other thing I wanted to say just very, very briefly is that you guys recorded uh, another uh, Gordon Lightfoot tune on the Catch the Wind album. That was For Loving Me. Now, I'm going to explore that song more on a different episode with another guest. But that one, to me, is kind of a nasty song. And it so I'm nasty. wondering, was that just because you guys were having fun with it? Or, you know, what was went into the thinking about that particular tune? Well, when, when we were doing that particular song, we were all kind of going, let's just give it back to him. Let's just give it back and say, well, that's what you get for loving me, damn it. You know? <laughs> that was kind of the sum of the song. It yeah. Just pooey. You know, this is what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and there you go. Pete, is there any, as we're wrapping up here, are there any other thoughts you have about the song um, or about the record on which it happened that we five did? I loved our record and I love the song. I don't imagine I will be doing that path again. You know, I'm, I did my swan song some time ago when it came to that album and singing in, in as background singer to a lot of different groups. So as far as that song and as far as the, the album is concerned, I think that's as far as I'm going with what I got. 
I hear you. Pete, you and I have, have played this song on a few occasions and yeah. um, it is still one that I love to hear. And I always think of you when I hear it on the radio or on my iMusic. Uh, and I, yeah. Oh, bless you. Pete Fullerton, thank you so much for being with us uh, today on Carefree Highway Revisited. Well, you're a joy, Mike, and it's a joy to talk to you. You're very clear. Thank Have you. a great day. So our next episode will be coming out the week of June 29th, and my guest will be Terry Wick-Machowski. She will be talking about Gordon's song, Beautiful. Until then, this is Mike Messner saying, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.